My beloved young people, members of the Church, outstanding leaders we have with us tonight, it's a great privilege for me to be here. And I pray that the Spirit of the Lord will be with me as I address you. As I look out over this vast audience, I notice one common denominator. You're all so young, very young, really young. Of course, my noticing how, how young you are is like a, a shuttle astronaut noticing way down below all of you who are so young down there. But even though the years have passed and years have separated me from your age, I still remember those things that I learned in college. I attended a university just north of here. <laughs> I could tell you the name, but I think it's wiser not to because I prize valor more than being frank with you. I loved many things about college. I loved learning. I loved the camaraderie. And I loved football. I had always dreamed of playing football at the university level. And during my freshman, sophomore, and junior years, I wore a crimson uniform and played running back. I ran for my life. <laughs> when I was your age, the world toitered on the brink of chaos, opposing political forces roiled and grinded against each other. Tension, mushrooming, nations chafed against each other. I was as though, it was as though the entire world groaned in the burgeoning rumble, a volcano that had to erupt, that ultimately would erupt. Before it was over, every nation, every people, felt the, different, the, the effects of this terrible war in those dark days. I remember the day my father came to me. It was just after the 1936 football season had ended. Joseph, he said, it is time now for you to go on your mission. If you don't go, you'll never go. And so I heeded his words and went to my bishop, Bishop Marion G. Romney, later the First Presidency of the Church. He had contacted me before, and then I said to him, it's time for me to go. I knew that I would have to give up football and perhaps my college education. Certainly, brothers and sisters, that was a grave decision for me at that age. But nevertheless, I made it, and I'm happy that I did. Certainly, it was a call to that country where there was so much trouble, the German-Austrian mission, the very center of all the trouble that existed in the world today. I'll never forget being aboard the SS Manhattan. And finally, we landed in Hamburg and then on to Berlin. And my first assignment was the Austria-Salzburg mission. Certainly, that was a difficult time for me. Because our, our mission had a shortage of missionaries, I was left alone in that far-off city 
the music center of the world. And, uh, of course, I didn't have the language. We had no mission training center at the time. And so those days I'll never forget. Certainly, I also remembered that a large army stood within 20 miles of Salzburg, and they were ready to strike any moment. Of course, that brought a mounting tension in the, in the air. No one knew of tomorrow, that tomorrow perhaps would be the day the panzer tanks would flood across the border. I remember those days so well. I don't suppose there's been a time in my life when I felt more discouraged, more lost. The mission was a difficult one. No one seemed to have any time for me or the message that I hoped to bring to them. I wondered if there would ever be enough members in that city of Salzburg to make up a ward. Six weeks I was alone. Six weeks I waited for my companions. Six weeks I wondered about what I might be doing and what I must do in order to magnify my calling. I also wondered what it would have been if I had remained in Salt Lake City. Even though the day and nights seemed at the time to never end, they eventually did. My companion arrived, and we still had a difficult time, but it was good to have a companion. The Lord blessed me with his Holy Spirit, a spirit of comfort, a spirit of knowing that he was at my side. That year at Christmas time, my companion and I decided we'd go out to a little dwarf called Obendorf and uh, celebrate Christmas Eve. Obendorf was a beautiful little village in the Bavarian Alps. Certainly the majesty of this village and the time of the year had a deep effect upon us. The beauty of Obendorf certainly inspired Joseph Moore in 1818 to write the wonderful hymn, Silent Night. On that Christmas Eve, we sat in the church and heard the strains of that small organ. And after that, we walked back to Salzburg. It was a crisp, clear winter night. And as we began our return trip, we talked to one another. We walked under the canopy of stars and across that smooth stillness of new-fallen snow. Perhaps it was a night not like, unlike the night that the inspired uh, pastor wrote those beautiful lines that has been so famous throughout Christendom. As we talked, my companion and I talked of our hopes and dreams. We talked of our goals and what we want to, uh, to accomplish in our lives. The more we talked, the more serious we became. We talked about achieving the things that were most important in life. That night, under the light of a full moon, we both made serious resolutions. I committed that night that I would not waste time, that I would renew my efforts to serve the Lord. I made up my mind that I would magnify all the callings that came to me in the Lord's kingdom. 
That was also the evening I made up my mind about whom I would marry. I didn't know her name, but I had in my mind that type of a companion, one who lived the gospel and who was strong spiritually. I even described her to my companion, that she would be five feet five tall, <laughs> that she would have blue eyes, and that she would have blonde hair. Here she sits tonight. All of the description that I made of her at that time without knowing her. And so that night was so important to me. Two and one half years passed, and before I knew it, it was home again. I remember hearing someone mention a name, Elisa Rogers, a young woman who was in charge of a university dance at the Hotel Utah, where uh, there was something special about that name. I decided I ought to meet her. I remember the first time I saw her. As a favor for a friend of mine, I had gone to her home to pick up her sister. Elisa opened the door, and I stared. <laughs> there she was, beautiful, five foot five, blue eyes, blonde hair. She must have had a feeling also because she said to me, I know who you was. <laughs> she quickly realized she had made a grammatical error <laughs> using the word was instead of were. To fully appreciate that, you have to remember that she's an, she was an English major. <laughs> Even after all the, these years, she's remembered the embarrassment of that moment. <laughs> of course, my retelling the story doesn't uh, make matters better, but I trust she'll forgive me. Six decades have gone by. They've intervened since that Christmas Eve in Obendorf when I made those resolutions. Much has happened to the in the intervening years, my premonition about playing football was certainly true. I never played again, but I did graduate from the university. Even so, I've never regretted serving a mission and committing myself to serving the Lord. By doing so, my life has been filled with adventure spiritual experiences, and joy that surpass understanding. Many of you here tonight may be at a time when your life seems to be difficult, when your feeling is so that you are discouraged or alone. Perhaps you feel a little lost, maybe even a little afraid. Everyone has felt this way at one time or another. Everyone has wondered if their life will be fulfilled and be, ha and a, be a happy one. More than two millennia ago, Aristotle suggested that everyone who has lived has the same basic objective to be happy. After 80 years of living, I've begun to pick up 
a few ideas about what it takes to be happy. Certainly tonight, I'd like to list a few of these, five of them, in fact. I hope they're helpful for you so that you can be serious about your life and that you'll be happy and that you'll have success and fulfillment in your life. And most of all, to attain the kingdom, the celestial kingdom of God. First, have faith in your Heavenly Father. He knows what you are. He listens to you when you pray. He loves you. He is mindful of you. He wants the very best for you. After serving for a time in Salzburg, I was transferred to Zurich, Switzerland. While there, I met a brother, Julius Billiter, a member of the Church and a genealogist. He approached me and said that he had seen the Worthland name in his uh, research and that he could probably help us with our family line. I wrote home and my father thought it was a wonderful idea, so we engaged him. After a year, he came to me with a book. This book was 14 inches long, 18 inches wide, and weighed 13 and a half pounds. It was filled with more than 6,000 names of my ancestors. It was a priceless volume that I treasured. Just before my mission release, I packed the precious book in a steamer trunk because I couldn't carry that book, it was too heavy, and sent it home. I prayed that it would be protected and that it would arrive some, someday at, in our home. I arrived home before the trunk. Weeks passed, still no trunk. I began to worry that this ir uh, irreplaceable, priceless document had been lost. Six months after I had arrived home in Salt Lake City, I received a call from the Union Pacific Depot. They said, a trunk had arrived for you. I rushed down to uh, retrieve it, but when I saw, saw it, my heart sank. The lock had been broken. Someone had gotten into it. I, pr I pried it open, and when I looked into the contents, my heart fell further. Everything had been soaked with seawater. What is more, what more could I do? Someone had rifled through my belongings, and I wondered if that priceless volume had been stolen. I gingerly removed the layers of clothing, searching for my precious book. When I reached, my heart overflowed with joy and surprise because it was there, but the pages were completely dry. I know the book was preserved through divine intervention. The Savior asked, Are not two sparrows said for a farthing, and one of them shall that shall not fall on the ground without your father, but the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of the more value than many sparrows. By the time 
I saw this wonderful book and had the joy of fingering through it and seeing that every page was dry and protected, the more I knew that our Heavenly Father protected the contents of that valuable book. On one occasion, President Thomas S. Monson made this statement to me, quote, There is a guiding hand above all things, President Monson said. Often, when things happen, it is not by accident. One day, when we look back, it's seeming coincidence of our lives. We will realize that perhaps they weren't so coincidental after all." Close quote. The Lord certainly knows your trials and your problems. I know, brethren and sisters, that He will help you. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lead not unto thy own understanding. In thy ways acknowledge him, he shall direct thy paths. The second great principle, set righteous goals. Many things will compete for your time and attention as you pursue your course throughout life. There will be endless distractions people and uh, things will approach you singing the siren songs of wealth, pleasure, and power. Success is a seductive world, word. Thousands of books have been written on this very subject. They promise money, more, they promise money freedom, leisure, and luxury. Thousands of people have provided as many surefire for formulas for building wealth. J. Paul Getty, for example, suggested three uh, uh, reasons and principles of success. He said, one, get up early in the morning, two, work hard, three, strike oil. Other perhaps more unilateral formula advocate various things in, in a singular theme that will focus all throughout your life the feelings of appreciation of your goals. You must want your goal with all your heart, with all your passion. You must focus every thought on your goal. You must concentrate your energy into achieving your goals. Of course, when applied of righteous uh, ends, these methods will be worthwhile in your life. The problem, problems that come in most cases that seem to search for wealth, pleasure, and power lead to a place that many seem at, uh, at first glance to be uh, desirable. But the closer you go, the more yourself, you are yourself, what it is. The price of worldly success too often comes at the price of your birthright. 
Those who make that bargain will one day reject the same as Esau did, who afterwards realized that he had made a mistake and wept bitterly. Another trait that we must watch is that we are not that we're not self-obsessed with success, that often we uh, credit the strength of our arm and power of our thoughts and forget that the Lord has blessed us and prospered us. Moses told the children of Israel that one day when thou hast eaten and art full and has built goodly house, and when thy flocks multiply and thy gold, silver and gold has multiplied, and all that thou hast has multiplied, and thou must say within thy heart, my power and, the, and my might at mine hand hath gotten those things of wealth. And it shall be if thou do all for, forget the Lord, and if you forget the Lord thy God and walk after another, other gods and arrive them and worship them, I testify against you this day ye shall surely perish. Close quote. Do you think you can use the money you have earned in this life? The currency, can the currency be used in the next life? Put your heavenly Father trust in our, in our, in His uh, blessings. Commit to uh, follow Him and obey His commandments, and strive very every day to become more Christ-like. Focus your effort on obtaining heavenly Father's riches. To do otherwise will ultimately bring uh, disappointment and sorrow. I'm reminded of the Savior's parable of the man who worked so hard to gain wealth. He had so many goods that he didn't have place enough to hold them. So he built great barns that could store them. His idea was that as soon as he had a safe place for all his resources, he could then retire and lead a comfortable life of leisure and, and being merry. But just as he finished the buildings, God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy life will be taken and shall be required at the men at the at then whose riches shall be not of this world. The sobering question is this. The Savior asked at this day, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the entire world and lose his own soul? In many in many necessarily certainly it applies to us the Book of Mormon, the prophet Jacob said this. He taught his uh, people 
Think of your brethren like unto you, like unto yourself, and uh, be familiar with all of them. Make sure that you that your substance may be given to your fellow men. But before ye seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. And after ye, after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches. Have ye seek them, and uh, will seek them for the intent to do good. Clothe the naked, feed the poor, feed the hungry, and thereafter the captive, and the number of those who need relief. Moses told the people in his day, If there be any among you who is poor, a man, each one of them, is your brother within any of thy gates in the land. Thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut, shut thine hand from the poor. The third advice I would give you is established in righteousness. Establish righteous goals. Work with all your might to accomplish them. If the words of President David O. McKay let us realize that it's a privilege to work, it's a gift, that power to work, uh, work is a blessing, that the love of work is success. Close quote. Work is therapy for the soul. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of work. I believe that a man, uh, that much of idleness we experience comes from a misunderstanding of the atonement of Christ. We cannot simply sit around and do something and expect to be successful in the spiritual matters or the temporal things of life. We need to do that with great power that we have, accomplish our goals, and the Lord will uh, make the difference for us. Remember the Lord, the, the, the wonderful words of President Gordon B. Hinckley when he declared, the major work of the world is not done by geniuses. It is done by ordinary people with balance in their lives and have learned to work in an extraordinary manner. Let me tell you about a remarkable individual who took responsibility for his life and made something of himself, despite humble beginnings. The name is Dr. Dan, uh, ben Carson. Dr. Carson was born and raised in the poor, poorest parts of Detroit. He grew up without a father. His mother took the responsibility of raising him and the family, and she passed this great sense of responsibility to her son. Dr. Carson and his mother would often say to her children, do you have a brain? If they answered yes, she would follow up and say, then you 
should use it. <laughs> Have you thought your way out of your problems and situations? It doesn't matter what uh, Johnny or Mary might say. You have a brain. Think your way out of your problems. Dr. Carson was, uh, had great success. He graduated as a doctor and then became a prominent surgeon, neurosurgeon, at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. He was the first doctor to perform brain surgery on Simonese twins. It was successful. This young man who grew up in a home without a father and without means and wealth, but decided to use his brain, which he did. Leonardo da Vinci said, God grants us all things of the price of labor. President Gordon B. Hinckley echoed this sentiment. There is no substitute under the heaven for productive labor, he said. It is the process by which dreams become realities. It is the process by which idle visions become uh, dynamic and, ach and achievements. It is work that uh, spells the difference in life. It is stretching our minds and utilizing the skills of our hands and trust this gift that will bring success for mediocrity. The fourth great principle, magnify your callings and be faithful members of the church. When we go to church, we surround ourselves with others who share our commitment to obey the commandments and follow the Savior's teachings. Some mistake the church for a place where perhaps perfect people are, say perfect things, think perfect thoughts, and feel perfect feelings. May I quickly dispel that thought. The church is a place where uh, imperfect people gather to help and to strengthen each other as we strive to return to our Heavenly Father. Every one of us will travel a different road in mortality, but we want to remember that the straight road to heaven is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will each progress at uh, different times and different rates. Temptations that afflict your brother may not trouble you at all. Never look down at those who are less perfect than you. Never be upset because someone can uh, speak w uh, better than you. You can do your very best in every case. If you do your best, you will succeed. The Church is a mutual improvement society with a goal to help every man and every woman and daughter of God to return to His presence. One way you can measure your value in the Kingdom of God to ask your, yourself, well, am I doing the best I can? 
Am I reaching my potential? Do I support others in the Church, or do I tear them down? If you're tearing them down, you're not building the kingdom of God. If you're building others, you are building the Church and kingdom of God. Another test of your worth in the kingdom of God is to ask yourself, if you are actively engaged in building the kingdom of God. All of you missionaries have helped to do this, and those who plan to go on missions, this should be your main goal, to build the kingdom of God. I have a model that has always, I thought, had some value. Always improving, always improving yourself, always improving the mission you're in always improving your home, and then you will find success in your life. If you do not have a calling in the Church, will you go to your bishop and tell him you are anxious to serve, willing to put your shoulder to the wheel? As you faithfully serve the Lord, He will be with you, and, he will, and you will feel His Spirit, and He will bless you to magnify your calling. A number of years have passed since the uh, General Conference when Acting President uh, Boyd K. Packer of the Council of the Twelve relay, uh, related this story. It was a story of a brother who helped his fellow men. He, in every way, had the spirit of the gospel when he was told that a certain brother had no, no flower. And uh, he was blessed in that he set aside this dear brother, Joseph uh, Millet, wrote in his journal that night, One of my children came in and said that Brother Newton Hall's folks were out of bread and uh, had none that day. I divided our flour in a sack to send up to Brother Hall. Just then, Brother Hall came in. Says I, Brother Hall, are you out of flour? Brother Millet, we have none. Well, Brother, Brother Hall, there is some in the sack just before you. I have divided it, and part of it goes to you, and I hope that you will be blessed because of it. Brother Hall began to cry. He said that he had tried others but could not find any flower. He went to the cedars and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told me, I go to Joseph, told me to go to Joseph Millet. Well, Brother Hall, I said, you uh, needn't bring this back. If the Lord sent you for it, you don't have to return it or owe it me for it. Later that night, Joseph Millet sat down and reflected on what, he had happened, what had happened that day. He wrote in his journal, You can tell me how good it made me feel, and I know that the Lord knew that there was such a person as Joseph Millet. That is a wonderful, that's a wonderful feeling to know that the Lord trusts and loves you enough 
to want to use you in, uh, in giving a helping hand to others. Brothers and sisters, your Heavenly Father wants to use you for the same purpose. As you magnify your callings and go about doing good, I promise you the Lord will bless you and uh, will bless you with means and ways to help our fellow men. The fifth great principle tonight that I'd like to mention is this. Enjoy the journey. The people of God are a joyful people. We, are under, we understand that there are times for sobriety, reverence, and devotion, but there are also times that we should have joy and happiness and the principles of eternal life. We have so much to smile about, as many as you know. So many of us are always waiting to be happy. If I, if I could graduate sooner, if I could attend a, uh, a, a certain meeting, if I could be married, far too many purposes is always just over the horizon, never reachable. Every time we climb and search for full happiness, we become just beyond the next. It's a terrible thing always to be waiting for tomorrow, always depending on tomorrow, always excusing today's because we are sure that only in the future will be, we will possess the things that we desire. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for the right job, the right house, the right salary, the right dress, size, or the right... <laughs> be happy today. Be happy now. Abraham Lincoln said, most folks are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. Make up your mind to be happy, even when you don't have money, even when you don't have a car or a clear complexion, even when you don't have the Nobel Prize. Some of the happiest people I know have never had these things, but they are happy because they want to be happy. They're happy because they keep the commandments of God. Certainly, we should listen well, or we might listen too well to the things they hear. They glory in the beauty of the earth. They glory in the rivers and the canyons and the call of the meadowlark. They glory in the love that always exists in families that are living in righteousness. The stumbling steps of a toddler, the wise and tender smile of the elderly, they glory in honest labor. They glory in the scriptures. They glory in the presence of the Holy Ghost. One thing I know for sure, 
And that's the time to have here a great experience in this life. Remember that time passes quickly. Don't waste any more of time sitting on the bench watching the time pass you by. Can I give you one other bit of advice? Be willing to laugh at yourself. When Elder Matthew Cowley was first called into the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, President J. Reuben Clark invited him to come and sit with him in his office, and he wanted to give him advice. He said, President Clark was one of the great leaders of the Church, having been an ambassador to Mexico and then was called into the First Presidency under the leadership of President Heber J. Grant. He was a man long accustomed to bearing heavy burdens and great responsibility. As the meeting between Elder Cowley and President Clark drew to a close, President Clark said, Now, kid, President Clark addressed the members of the Twelve of the Apostles as kids. Now, kid, don't forget rule number six. What rule is that? What is six? Elder Cowley asked. Don't take yourself too seriously. What are the others? What are the other five? Elder Cowley asked. President Clark said, There aren't any. <laughs> Some people take themselves too, too seriously that they uh, feel they may uh, and cannot complete their work until they find themselves. Some abandon family, occupation, education, or the quest to do good even, or to discover who they are. George Bernard Shaw said, Life is not about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. Don't worry about searching for who you are. Focus your energies on creating the kind of person you want to be. You will never discover that uh, the purpose of life is the source that you should search for. Certainly, the search and the quest for eternal life is the most important thing we can do. Do not procrastinate a minute longer. Every moment is, sac is sacred and precious. Determine tonight that you will make of yourself something remarkable. Not long ago, I had the opportunity to return with Sister Worthlin to the place where I began my mission. My assignment was to organize the Salzburg Austria stake. In a way, it was a it was a homecoming for me. I remember the day that I walked those cobblestone streets and wondered if ever this small branch would become a ward. And here I was, organizing a stake. My memories drifted back to the time that I had such a difficult time when I was alone. I remember those instances that really did me the most good. The trial and loneliness certainly were helpful to me and prepared me for the future. 
those times of seeming failure may have been the time of the most instrumental in my life. I'll never forget that day in Salzburg, Austria, when it became a stake and when I met those wonderful sisters. Some were 80, 90 years of age, and I remember them so well. Valiant sisters. The priesthood had been taken in by Hitler's army to go to the Eastern Front. Not one priesthood bearer returned home. But nevertheless, years later, this small branch developed into a stake. While there certainly uh, I wouldn't pass the opportunity to take my wife, Elisa, back to Oberndorf, we walked the same path as my companion and I had walked. And then I recalled to her my determination in that beautiful area of majestic mountains, pristine beauty, in that small Berrien village, I related to her my goals and the fact that I described to her, my companion, the woman I would marry. These resolutions that I made that night of finding the right wife have stayed with me. And the glow of her personality and the warmth of her spirit and her great faith in the kingdom have all helped me in my duties. Although I still have much to learn and much to accomplish, I've done my best. I have faith in God. I've done my best to focus on the things that are most important. I've done my best to work hard at righteous tasks and endeavors. I've done my best to magnify my callings I've received in the Church, and I've done my best to enjoy the journey. May you do the same. May you create within yourselves that same determination of worthy goals that will bring you a divine heritage for those who follow you. My young friends, I testify to you that this is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that my mission in far-off Europe is the same now as it was then. I testify that we have a Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who gave us the great atonement. I testify that Joseph Smith was, was and is a prophet of God who received the fullness of the gospel and who established the fullness of the Lord's Church on the earth at this time. I bear witness that President Gordon B. Hinckley is a prophet, seer, and revelator. He loves the youth and the Church and has great hopes for you. I share his optimism to you to pursue righteous desires and goals. The Lord will bless you and will make this journey a great one and a pleasant one if you keep the commandments. The Lord wants you to succeed and be happy. He wants you to come unto Him. May you find peace and joy in your journey throughout your life is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.